Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. You've probably heard the phrase before, uh, when you're stuck with a decision and, and someone wants to know, like, do you believe this or this? Someone will say to you, when they want you to get very clear, they'll say, all right, gun to your head, what do you think? And I always hear that, and I actually heard it like about a week or two ago. I said, Chris, man, gun to your head. What, what decision would you make? And I'm always like, why are we putting guns in people's heads? I don't, this is not okay. <laughs> like, why is this a phrase we use? Only in America would we, would we, would we say like, hey, gun to your head. Make a decision, hashtag America, right? Like, it's weird. Um, but, but I think what we're trying to do there when we say that is, hey, tell me what your convictions are on this issue. What is at your, at your core gut level, it just kind of comes out of you spontaneously. What is your core deepest level conviction on this issue? What are you willing to die for? Which also could be what are you willing to even live for? What is there in, in the center? And I think that's actually a, a good question for us to ask and answer from time to time. What are we, what are we living for? What are we, what are we dying for? Because life has a way of sort of putting us on a treadmill of get good grades and get into school and, and get an education, get this career path and then get promoted and date and marry and get a house and a car and, and all the things and then raise up those kids well and send them off well. And on all of these things, there's like this treadmill of like get on it and just keep moving and keep moving and it's always coming at you and just do the next thing. And, and because of that, we rarely stop and ask what is this about, or why am I doing this, or what am I here for, what, what convictions do I have, what on earth am I even on this planet for? And if you've heard me speak from the stage before, you know that I've talked about that idea before. This is a recurring theme for me. And I think it's a recurring theme for me because the Lord has been impressing this upon me uh, in my adult life to, to slow down and look at what it's all about. I, one of the privileges of my job as a, as a minister is I get to perform weddings and funerals. And uh, there's something about those big events of life that make you stop and think, where is this all going? What is this about? Why, why are we here? 
um, and, and, and what really matters in life. And those aren't new questions. Those aren't, that's not just a, a question of the modern age. All throughout history, people have wondered why they spend the time on earth that they do and what it's all about. In the New Testament, uh, the, the, the first century in the ancient world, uh, people were asking those questions as well, and they were, and they were wondering what mattered. And, and with that as a backdrop, I want to I jump into this letter that was written from Jesus through the Apostle John while he was exiled off the coast of Turkey in an island called Patmos. He wrote a letter to seven churches that are in western Turkey. Um, and, and this is the letter to the church at Pergamum that, that Tyler just read for us. Just listen to the beginning of this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All right, twice it references here that Satan lives there. Um, that's weird, right? You, you go, man, he's in the neighborhood. I didn't know. Uh, you know, like, in this one city, of all the cities of the world, you guys get to live next to Satan as a, as a, as a neighbor. That's an odd thing. What is he talking about? Well, there's... Uh, worship of several gods there in Pergamum, Dionysius uh, and, and uh, Scopolis. And there is a, there's an altar, a throne there that actually was taken in Pergamum today. If you go there, you can see where the throne was, but it was actually taken by the Germans, uh, archaeologists in 1897. They took it from Pergamum and they took it to Berlin. And if you want to go see it now, the throne of Satan is what it would be called. Um, you can see that uh, throne that in, in, a, in Berlin. It looks like this, actually. They've kind of reconstructed it. Um, and this was a place for worship of Dionysius. So you had Dionysius, Asclepius, you had some other gods that they would worship there. And he doesn't say, oh, you're worshiping Dionysius or Asclepius. He's saying all of that ultimately, at the end of the day, is uh, worship of Satan. And this and Pergamum is a very spiritually and sort of religiously dark place. Um, Asclepius uh, is a place where, is, is the god they would worship who was a god of healing. Um, and actually people would lay down and if you were diseased, you would lay down in the darkness and these snakes would crawl over your body and that would bring healing. I don't know what you got, but it ain't worth having snakes crawl over you. I, I'm pretty sure I'd go straight up Indiana Jones and be like, snakes, why did it have to be snakes on that? Like, no. Um, but that was a thing that they did. Um, it's actually somewhat the origin of, you've probably seen this picture before, uh, a, a modern symbol of medicine. Notice there's a snake wrapped around it. It's Asclepius. It's, it's a reference to that ancient tradition. Um, so we had the opportunity to go to Pergamum, the city we're talking about today. I was there on Father's Day this year. And uh, it is perched way up on a hill. You'll be able to see in the video. And I want to show you and give you a little bit of the historical background. I want to show you the video of that so you can see the space that we're talking about. Um, and uh, I, I will, the, the heads up on this one, it was, it was very windy when we shot. This was the first video we shot. It was pretty windy, and so you'll hear some wind noise. But uh, I think you can track with what it's saying. So check this video out. We're here in Pergamum, a city perched 1,000 feet above the plains below resting on a solid cliff of volcanic rock. Pergamum was a city that aspired to forge itself into kind of like a second Athens. It had the second largest library in the ancient world. It was such a threat to the library at Alexandria that Egypt stopped 
sending out papyrus, so the citizens of Pergamum actually just switched to parchment instead. In fact, the root of that word, parchment, means of Pergamum. It was home to the tallest theater in the ancient world, with acoustics so perfect that even to this day, an actor whispering at the stage below could be heard all the way to the top. And to build their capital into a second Athens, the kings of Pergamum were careful to rebuild their city into the ultimate center of worship, and they had altars for all the gods of the ancient world. There was a temple to the god of Zeus. There was a dark medical temple to the god Asclepios, where patients would come and have snakes slither all over them in the darkness. And then there was a temple to the goddess Dionysius. Then there were the vomitoriums built for the orgies of Dionysius. They were packed high with raw meat and wine was flowing, and the young women of the city were required to be raped in festivals before they were allowed to marry. And of course, there was a large temple to the Roman emperors, which was key to allowing Pergamum to function as a capital in Asia of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus refers to Pergamum as the seat of Satan's throne, it's unclear to which of these dark cults he was referring to, but many scholars just kind of split the difference and assume he's kind of talking about all of them. However, it's fitting that we're in a theater because Jesus presents a dramatic scene to the church here. Pergamum is praised by Jesus for their staunch resistance to the cult of Pergamum. They have refused to be sucked into the Nicolaitan progressive thought of compromise. They actually stood so firm that one of their stalwart bishops here was a guy named Antipas, and he was murdered publicly in a sacrifice to the, to the pagan gods here. The contrast between dark and light could not have been more stark than, than here, but Jesus has something to say against the church. Yes, their courage was fantastic and, and, and unparalleled, but they were allowing pagan thought and practice to kind of sneak in through the back door. Jesus compares some of the false teachers in Pergamon to Balaam, the Old Testament shaman who failed to challenge Israel directly because they were too strong for that. So in order to still earn his king's ransom, Balaam tried to sneak trouble in through the back door of Israel. Jesus is not exactly being specific about which sins are sneaking in covertly, and in a city like Pergamum with all sorts of stuff going on, it's hard to know exactly what he meant. But the warning from Jesus is still very clear. You can fight the good fight on one front and still be blind to the dangers that are sneaking in under the radar. Let's take, let's take a look at Revelation 2, verses 14, going back into that letter. I have a few things against you, he says. You have some of those who told the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We talked about this when we, when we studied 1 Corinthians about a month ago. We talked about the idea of meat sacrifice to idols. I'm not going to get into a lot about that. But it was a question of conscience. If, if people are taking this meat, sacrificing it to the idols, to the gods of the day, to Zeus and Asclepius and all this and Dionysius, um, was it okay for a Christian in their conscience to take, then, then go buy that meat and use it for food when it's been sacrificed? And Paul makes the point in 1 Corinthians that not to raise so many issues of conscience about that. It's not that big of a deal. We know the gods are not real, that kind of thing. 
But in Pergamum, it was darker than that. In order to get the meat, it raised these issues of conscience because there would be these orgies that you would participate in and prostitution and that sort of thing. And so you go visit them and, and, and do all of that, and then you got meat that you would bring home for your meal. And that kicks up all sorts of ethical issues. Um, and that, that's, that's hard to even imagine. You don't have those kind of ethical issues when you go to Kroger, for example, to get meat. Uh, the ethical issues you might have are was this animal ethically raised and treated and, and that kind of thing. Is this organic? You might say something like that. But there are, no, there are no temple prostitutes at Kroger, so it doesn't kick up the same kind of stuff for you when, when you go, right? But think about how hard in that culture it would be just to get meat than to feed your family when that's the kind of thing you had to participate in in, in order to, to get it. Um, think how dark that is. Like, Getting food for your family requires cheating on your spouse. That's, 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 how, it would, that's how it would work. Man, I love, I love art. I, I love ancient art. I love architecture. Being in Pergamum is incredible because it's this city way up on a hill, if you could tell from the picture, the modern city's down below. And it's, it's incredible to think, how did you get all those stones and marble and all those things up the hill to even build up there? Like, it's, it, it's incredible when you see what people have done culturally through the ancient world. But when I think about what it would be like to actually live there, and I think about things like this, it's brutal. It's dark. It is not a good culture for women. They're very poorly treated. It's not a good culture for, for anybody. It, it's, it's, really, um, it's really awful. And, and that's, that's the world that Christians were living in, in that culture. And, and if you're repulsed by it, if, if, I, if I tell you that story of ancient Pergamum, and you today are like, that's gross, that's terrible, and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that the reason that today you think that's gross and that's terrible is because Christians came along and changed it, and changed the entire culture, and made things better, and, and, and made things more hopeful, and, and brought about a change in the world. We are, whether you are a Christian or not, you are living in a world in the West that Christianity has helped create, and it fixed some of the very dark things that were going on in the ancient world. So if you live in that culture, how do you stand with conviction back then? How do you stand in the midst of that and, and still hold on to your faith in Jesus? It's not like, oh, it's just my private faith and I pray and I'm quietly over here and I just kind of do my thing. No, these are like real issues you have to face when you go get a meal for your family. How do you stand in that? Some... Uh, some did it really well. He, he, he commends them that when a guy named Antipas was murdered uh, for his faith, the, the, the believers in Pergamum stood strong. They didn't deny their faith. And so there's, there's a commendation from Jesus to them at that point. But I think there's a couple lessons to learn from this letter. Number one is this. We must examine our convictions. We have to examine where we stand and why. What do you believe? In the West right now, I think in, in America and in a lot of the West, we are doing the work of deconstruction. We are tearing down anything and everything that came before us, the traditions, the, the art, the architecture, the beliefs that were passed down for us from our grandparents, the parents, and, and, and on down. We are tearing down all of these things um, that we've built. We're tearing, and, and, and I think the internet has accelerated that deconstruction. So we are burning down statues, and we're burning down history, and we're burning down our traditions, and, I, and definitely tearing down religion and faith, and we're tearing down tradition, and we're saying that everybody who 
came before us got it wrong. We're right. Um, we don't need that. Even my family doesn't know me. I get to decide who I am. We're doing all of this kind of stuff and, and, and basically saying everything that came before us wasn't right and we're going to figure it out and, and, and we're, we've got it right. And this is a big challenge across all of society when we do this. This is a challenge for science right now. Um, we, we as a, as a, in the West, we have stood on science for a couple hundred years in some ways to say science is a reliable way to look at the physical world and understand how it's made. But we don't trust science, or at least we're not trusting scientists much anymore. And so there's a big challenge there. How do you still make the things and explain the things if we don't trust what is made, right? That, that becomes a big challenge. So we, we, we tear down science. We tear down education. It used to be you go to college because the professors were the knowledge gatekeepers of, of, of all knowledge. But when you have the internet and you can Google anything and everything, who is the gatekeeper of knowledge anymore? You can find out anything you want, basically. And so this is a big challenge for education. How do we speak to a world where we're not trusting even, you know, if, if I don't like this professor, I'm going to get on rate my professor and trash them, you know, and like, how do you teach in a world like that? This is a, a, a challenge for government. How do you, how do you uh, govern well? How can you be a politician in today's day and age when nobody trusts you and they think you're lying and they don't think you have the best interests in heart of your constituents? This is a challenge. It's a challenge in the church. How do you help people see the grand narrative? We in the church are sitting here going, there's heaven, there's hell, there's Jesus, there's God, all of this, angels, demons, it all comes together. There's a big thing going on. There's a, a massive war over your soul. By the way, you actually have a soul. It's real. You know, like all of this stuff we're saying in the church and in a postmodern culture that doesn't believe in any grand narrative to anything, how do you say that stuff with a straight face and, and, and get through to people? This is a big challenge in the church because there's so much deconstruction. We, we, we are tearing things down as a culture. We're tearing down all the things that have ever given our lives meaning and we wake up and we're finding out that life just has no meaning at all and surprise, that feels terrible. We've ripped everything down and we're standing in a pile of rubble and we're trying to build something back on top of the pile of rubble of what has gone before us. So we look at the pile of rubble and we go, this is awful to live here. I'm going to build something meaningful. I'm going to pursue climate change. That's the thing. Climate change sounds big and it sounds noble and it's like, oh, I'm going to save the planet. What could be better than saving the entire planet? That sounds amazing. I'm in. And so we go and we give our lives to that because it's better than living in the rubble. Or we stand in the rubble and we go, uh, I'm going to pursue social justice because there's problems here and there's a systemic issue here and there's these things going on. And I'm not saying none of that is real and there's not things to talk about and conversations to have, but people go after it like it is their reason for existence because it beats standing in the rubble. And then we tear down religious beliefs and traditions and Christianity and all the religious beliefs of the world, and we level that and put that in a pile of rubble, and we stand on top of that, and we say, I'm going to pursue spirituality in sort of a vague way, and we, and we hope that that is, is helpful. And the truth is, when we're standing in the midst of that, nobody really wants to live in that. We think if we re rebuild these things, it will give us meaning, but it won't. Um, it's, it's not working. Drug overdose in this country is up 500% since the year 2000. People are pounding antidepressants left and right. And I'm not anti-antidepressant, but what I am anti is not figuring out why we are so depressed. We've told people there's nothing that matters, and then we're surprised people are a little discouraged by that. Like, this is where we're at as a society, we're trying to build socialism on the rubble of capitalism. We're trying to build vague spirituality on the rubble of religion. And it's not working. We've been telling people 
that life is, is not worth anything, and we're surprised when people find that discouraging. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to stand in the midst of all of that fluidity and all of that rubble and say, I still stand on something solid here that has lasted from, the, from history, throughout history. I still stand here with conviction and say, Jesus is worth standing on. He's, he's worth building my whole life on. We have to stand there and, and ask ourselves, what do I believe and why? We, we follow Jesus and, and one of his followers, the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he wrote, what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. For I am sure, what is the word sure? The word is, that's, that's a word of conviction, right? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and when I read that, and I see his conviction in those words, and I just wonder, do I, do I share that conviction? And I, and I wonder for you, like, what would happen if those words settled onto your heart? Or like, deeper than your heart, what if those words lodged themselves into your soul? So that if I, if I was to cut you open and say, what is at the core of you? This is at the core. The core of me is I stand on Christ and nothing can separate me from the love of God. This is what life is about. This is what the universe is all pointing to. What if the conviction settled on your life that life is actually purposeful, that we are going somewhere, that I am to be a disciple of Jesus, I'm going to obey him, follow him, and then I'm going to reach out and grab as many people as I can to come along with me. How would, how would that change for you if that conviction settled on you? How would you view death? I think you would view death as, as something that it's, it's a part of life, but it's not something that would, that would shake you. In your core, you would not be shaken by it. You would say, man, they can kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. So the first idea here is examine your convictions. When we cut you open, what comes out? Um, we need to have something meaningful there. Platitudes will not do for core convictions. You, you can't build a life on love is love and kindness is everything. Because kindness is not everything. And when we try to make it everything, it's a path to ruin. I'm not anti-kindness. I know it probably sounds like I am right now. <laughs> I'm not anti-kindness. But we can't build a life just on those things. We have to stand on what's true. And we won't grow. You're not going to become like Christ. You're not going to really grow or mature in any way if you don't stand on convictions, if we, if we lack convictions. And so we have to examine them so we can stand strong and evaluate the times that we live in. If, if we're living in a culture that changes so frequently and trends come and go and things become popular and then not popular and, and ideas sort of go in and out of fashion, like how do you discern all of that? How do you stand on in the midst of all that mess and stand for what is true. We have to have conviction. We have to be in, in the scripture and evaluate the times that we live in. We are flooded with information. I, I've experienced this over the last year and a half. You guys have too, right? You're flooded with so much information. It is so hard to distinguish, distinguish truth from lies. How do we know what's actually true in the midst of all this? How do you discern what is real and what is just like shiny plastic crap that they're selling to us? Because there's plenty of it. We, we can't, as followers of Jesus, we can't just go with that and follow the times. A guy named Gustave Thibon said, to be with the time is the ambition of the dead leaf. 
So examine your convictions. Number two, notice where you are compromising your convictions. It would be very easy to justify getting the meat from that has been sacrificed to idols in Pergamum. Even even if you had to do the orgies and all the things that you'd have to do to get it, it would be easy to justify that because you would go, well, we've got to eat, and I need to feed my family. And apparently there were some Christians that were doing that and justifying it and, and, and really, like, in a sense, they're pretending not to know what they're doing, right? Oh, yeah, you know, people be like, where'd you get this meat? Oh, I got it at the temple. Oh, I know what you did. Like, it, it would be... It would be obvious, right? It would be brazen what they're doing. But in our culture, it's so much more subtle to compromise our convictions. It's not, that's not a Kroger, right? It's, it's more subtle than that. For us, lust will be porn. It'll be uh, a, a long gaze. It, it, it will be desiring something or someone that does not belong to you and, and, and trying to objectify them. Lust will look like that, and so we'll cut those corners sort of quietly and privately. Uh, We'll cut corners financially. We'll steal time from our employer and waste time on things that don't matter for work. We will um, take our money and overspend, and then we will not give generously towards God because, man, you know, I I just need to make sure that I have all my money for me, and we won't be generous towards God, and we will cut corners there. We will cut corners in relationships. Um, We will surround ourselves with people who don't share our convictions, and there are plenty of them around. I understand that, but... We will surround ourselves with people who don't share our convictions, and then some of that will rub off on us. I mean, that's, that, that's like a human nature thing. Like, you will become like the people you hang around with. So if you find yourself in a group of idiots, guess what you will become eventually? Like, you're going to get some of it on you. This is why your mom worried about who your friends were in high school. They saw, they were like, oh, here it goes. Like, I know, I know how this goes. Um, we have to be careful and notice where we might be compromising our convictions. And this brings to me to point number three. We have to find the people who share your convictions. Find the people who share your convictions. I think this is increasingly difficult in the modern world. If you were in America in like 1955 and you wanted to be a follower of Jesus, it was easier than to find other people who also were trying to do the same thing. Uh, uh, church attendance, if you're going to use that as a metric, was higher in like the 50s in America than any time in American history. So you could find people who generally shared your worldview and outlook and were, you know, a Bible study or something like that. You could find those, those sorts of things. Um, but now, church engagement is, is much lower than that. Um, and, 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 and it has changed a lot. And it has changed a lot even um, pre-COVID to now when I talk to friends all over the country about how, you know, are people involved in church and what's going on. Um, it, it's, it's much lower uh, engagement for people than, than prior to COVID. Um, and so there's, there's some real challenges there. We need to find people who share conv- convictions. Not, not just so we can pray together. Praying together is good. Not just so we can sing together. Sing, singing together is good. Not just so we can study the word together. All of that is good. But we need to get together because we believe this crazy idea that there is a God, that he came to earth, that he died on a cross, and he came back from the dead. Normal people do not believe that. It's weird. And so we, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are the weird ones. We always have been, always will be. We're the ones who are like, yeah, this guy died and then he wasn't dead. And it's real and you can follow it and there's actually a future. 
and there's heaven and hell. There's all of these things. Like, we actually believe that. And so we get together not to pray, not just to teach, not to sing, uh, not all of those things. We get together because we just have to be with other people to know that we're not crazy. Like, oh, you believe this too? Yeah, okay, you, yeah. I mean, that's true now in 2021 in America. That was true in 90 AD in Pergamum too. You had to get together with other people just to be reminded that you're not crazy and that other people believe this too. You have to do it, and we need that too. Um, This is why uh, the church developed these creeds, these statements that they would say, um, 200 miles north of Pergamum, just south of Istanbul, is the city of Nicaea. And in that city... Uh, in the year 325 AD, they developed what is now came to, what came to be known as the Nicene Creed, and it was a statement that all Christians would say say together of what they believe. And this is how it starts. I want to put it up on the screen. And actually, let's let's just read it all together. Let's just try this. Let's read this together. We believe in our God, the Father Almighty, Maker of all things visible and invisible. Notice it doesn't say I believe. It says, we believe. This was not a personal Jesus statement. This was, we are in this together. We all share these convictions, and we're going to say them out loud regularly to re- be reminded of what we're about. This, th- these, these words came out of a community that stood with conviction. It was our faith, not just my faith or your faith. And we value that. That's, that's actually why we gather here in the bird, to share our faith, not just our own personal story. Um, it's why next month at, at this church, you're going to hear a lot about groups that are starting. We'll start different small groups out in the community. Uh, we'll have formation groups um, that, that, that we'll meet. Uh, we'll have different kinds of small groups that are going to meet starting in September. And we're going to ask you to join this, not because we think that you just need to be a little more busy, not because we're looking at your schedule and being like, you know, one more thing would be great on everybody's plate. We are starting these groups because we need each other. And, and we need to be with people who share our convictions and to build each other up. Um, we're starting these groups because we believe, all of us, together, and we need to stick together. An ember burns in a fireplace, but you pull it out of the fireplace. doesn't matter how hot it was, it will eventually burn out. And so we want to do the things that are like the fireplace that pull people together and continue the heat going. So those are some thoughts about conviction, but there is a warning to Pergamum, and I want, and I want to read it here at the end. Verse 16, it says this, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the, the word to the church in Pergamum, you know, they, they're commended for standing on their convictions, but the word is repent. Turn away. You were walking this direction, now walk the other way. Now repent is such a churchy word. In our modern culture, it sounds like, you know, fire and brimstone, this hellfire preacher of like, you need to repent and turn and turn or burn, you know, like turn away from your wicked ways, that, that kind of thing. That's, that, I guess that comes up when we think of repent. That word has kind of fallen out of fashion. But I think the concept is, is good because growth and maturity comes from repentance. You 
you know that. That's, that's true spiritually. Let me give you an example of it outside of the spiritual realm. If you say today, I want to lose 20 pounds, um, you will have to repent of your eating ways. Facts. The way you eat got you the way you are for decades. So if you, if you continue to do exactly the same things you've always done, you will continue to get the results you've always gotten. The only way around that is to go a different direction and say, I'm going to do something completely different. I'm going to eat differently. That is repentance. It is, I was going this way, I, I say that's not the way to go, I will turn and walk a completely different direction. That's an example. We wouldn't use the word repentance for it, but I don't know, there's, I've had meals I should repent of, uh, for sure. Um, that, we think of it as, in, in, uh, as this really um, heavy thing that, oh man, you need to sort of turn or burn that, that, that idea. But I, I think there's something there that we have to turn away um, and what is true of the physical, like eating, is also true of the soul. Um, we have to repent of our ways of thinking, of our ways of being, of the desires that are inside of us and, and walk a different road. Repentance doesn't have to be heavy. Okay, so I, I say this about repentance, and I know that kicks up like, oh, it's so like, you think, oh, I just did this terrible thing, and I, I, I lied last week, and there's a little gossip, and there's porn, and there was all these things we start going through in our head of like, I need to turn away from these things. And, and if you're feeling that conviction from God right now, that, that's fine. Like, but I also want you to hear this. Um, it's not fire and brimstone and, and hellfire and damnation that leads people to repentance. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's his kindness that will lead us there. Not fiery judgment. It is the goodness of God and reflecting on how much you are loved that can draw you towards repentance. I want to leave you with this last verse. I want you to hear this again because there's some weird things in it. Revelation 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Cool. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I read that and I thought, that's weird. There's a white stone. Well, like, what's that about? Here's the deal. Um, when you had the snakes crawl over you and, 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 and they give you water and things and you were healed of whatever sickness you had, the way that you would honor Asclepius, the god, the way you would honor him for your healing is they had these white stones and you would write on the stone what you were healed of and you would bow before the altar and you would leave the stone there of Asclepius healed me of this thing. That's kind of the background of the white stones. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm, I'm the true healer, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change you, not just heal you of the sickness, but I'm going to give you an entirely new identity. I'm going to speak to you words of life, and I'll, give you, and I'll give you this stone with a new name written on it, uh, that you are this new person because what I have done for you. And I, and I think that's like a, a powerful image. So two challenges and then we're done. Number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you, um, I don't know, if a friend brought you or you accidentally wandered into a church, you like thought it was going to be a movie and you're really disappointed right now, um, I, I just want to give you this because maybe nothing I've said is compelling to you. I, I, I don't know. Um, I have prayed that God would move in people's hearts because of this. Um, but let me challenge you, look closely at the culture we're living in, because
because it's lies. It's the prettiest, nicest lies that, are the best, that have the best marketing behind them, but they're still lies. And this is what our culture is trying to sell to us. And I want you to see it and notice it. And notice when you're tempted to tear down every tradition that came before you. Oh, my parents are stupid. Religion is stupid. You know, all of these things that came before me, all of that was really dumb. Like, notice when you're doing that. Because you might be tearing down truth. And you don't want to do that. G.K. Chesterton wrote this. Those who leave the tradition of truth do not escape into something we call freedom. They only escape into fashion. When I saw that quote, I thought, I want that on a t-shirt so badly. We only escape into fashion. We only escape into whatever the new hotness is, whatever's hot now. And it's a fool's errand to keep chasing it. It's empty. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me invite you to give your life to him. You can, on the card you got when you came in, check on there that you're interested in baptism. We will reach out to you. We'll talk to you about being baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive God's spirit inside you. You can join the community and become a follower of Christ. Let me challenge you with that, to, to turn away from the lies that our culture is selling and, 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 don't, and, and, to, and to be actually free. If you are a Christian, um, let me challenge you then today to stand with conviction and repent if need be. Turn away. There's a hopeful scripture in 1 John 1. Uh, and, and, and he says that, that if, if we confess our sins to one another, God is faithful to forgive us. And so there's this idea that we would repent and then confess our sins not just to God, but even to one another. And so maybe the action step for you today is, I need to find someone to sit down and confess to. I need to find one person and go, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, and let's have coffee and talk about it. Men find men, women find women, and sit down and have coffee and say, um, this is where I'm at, this is what I need to confess of, this is what I need to confess, and, and start going down that road of repentance. Um, I believe there's a better future coming for us when we stand with conviction and, and we repent. Um, I, I think God loves us, gives us a white stone with a new a new name or a new identity on it, and uh, I, I think good things will come for those who, who stand, and we're promised in Pergamum good things will come for those who, who stand true to their faith. Let's, let's pray. God, it's hard to stand with conviction when there are so many voices around that are yelling loudly other things and telling us that we're wrong or we're bad or we're whatever because we don't follow the current cultural fashion. Um, but God, I, I pray for everyone in this room that they, that they stand with conviction on the truth, the truth of Scripture. Not, not my truth or your truth, but the truth grounded and rooted in the Scriptures. Uh, may we stand there individually, and then may we stand there as a community together, speaking as, as best we can as a, as a unified body, um, speaking about your love and grace to the world and speaking truth to the world. Um, thank you for the example of the saints in Pergamum and what they had to walk through in a very dark culture. Uh, may we learn from their example and, and uh, walk through whatever darkness may be ahead for us too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.